Good morning. Turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. We'll be looking at how Christ came to serve and, and looking at the humility of Christ. And as you turn there, uh, uh, just something I wanted to mention um, when it comes to being a servant. Uh, we had a, uh, a parenting conference this weekend, and we needed a lot of child care volunteers because we have lots of children. And uh, the students uh, from our student ministry stepped up. Uh, and several of them came uh, Friday night, gave up a, a Friday night in the fall, uh, which is amazing to me, and came, and our intent was to pay them, and none of them would, would, would take any money. And I was just moved by kind of what I'm seeing from our student ministry and these teenagers, and I had some good kids in my student ministry. Uh, there's no doubt about it, but I feel like we're at a time where and we have a lot of great kids in our student ministry. It's just, our student ministry is just full of, of kids that are wanting to serve and, and not be the church of tomorrow, but to be the church of today. So I was just impressed with that. We had a great conference this weekend, but I was just uh, really amazed at the heart of our teenagers. And they set as a great example uh, for us all. So uh, credit to, to, to parents and, and to Brother Josh and uh, of course, most of all, God for working in their hearts. This morning, we want to talk about uh, from hum- humiliation to exaltation. And that's what we see here in these verses that Christ did. And we want to go back and, and read the verses that we looked at last week, as well as the uh, verses starting in verse 5 that we'll be looking at this week. Paul writes this to the Philippian church. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, something that I find amazing about this text, as Tim Keller writes about this text, he said, when it comes to the mountaintops of Scripture, this is one of the top mountain." peaks i mean this is uh, an amazing unfolding of the theology of christ of who christ was uh, what was really it even tells us some somewhat about what was in his mind when he did what he did it's an amazing amazing verse that theologians throughout history have gone to to form uh, our doctrine of christ it's just it's an important text and it has been studied and studied and studied but what, what I found interesting is when you really look at the context of the verse, the purpose is not Christology. 
Paul isn't writing about, hey, have humility, church, have humility. Okay, we're turning from that subject, and now we're gonna, I'm going to give you a good theology of Christ. That's not what he does. And he's, he's saying, hey, as we think about being a church, and being a church where we're humble and we're holding things together, you need to look to Christ who did this. So I love the fact that we look at this mountain peak of theology of Christ, and yet we need to trace it back down and realize it occupies the ground level. And it has to do, in the Philippian church, it was about keeping the church together. There was some division uh, some some women were at odds who were renamed nameless this morning. Uh, they were at odds uh, in the Philippian church. And, and Paul's just trying to say, hey, you need to count others more significant than yourselves. You need to put others above yourself and, and keep the unity of the church. And I just love the fact. And, and, and folks, if your grand theology just exists in the clouds... And it makes no difference in how you treat others and how you treat your spouse and how you treat your children, children and how you treat your parents. Something is vastly wrong if that theology is not getting back to the ground level because that's what Paul's doing here. He's using this amazing theology of Christ to instruct them at the ground level of their church life. And so I want, I want us to do, to honor that, I want to honor the cosmic truths that are here, but then I also want us to, to honor the, the ground level truths that are here. And so what I want us to do is we're going to look at, first, the deity of Christ that this verse reveals. We're going to look at the humility of Christ that this wor- this, these verses reveal. And uh, we're going to look at the exaltation of Christ that these verses reveal. But each time we want to kind of come back to the ground level and say, how should this govern our mind? That's what this is about. He says, have the mind of Christ. Have, have the mind that is yours in Christ Jesus. Have Christ's mind. And so we want to, I want to honor the cosmic truths and also honor the context of what, of why Paul is writing this. So first I want to look at the deity of Christ. The deity of Christ that these verses unfold. And the first thing I want us to notice is that Jesus was God. It says, though he was in the form of God. Now, Paul, uh, now, now what many people believe Paul does here, or he's doing here, and it's not airtight like some other places where Paul does this, but it does seem that this may be the case. And that is that Paul is, is really quoting a hymn of the day. So, uh, and, and maybe modifying it a little bit to, uh, to fit uh, what he's trying to tell these people. And so what we have here is really what the church very likely what the church was singing uh, in, in those early, early, early days of the church. And that's important because so many people say, well, you know, Christ came and the more we got removed from that, that's when everybody kind of started saying he was deity. But no, this is, this is right there early on with people that knew Christ and, and saw Christ that these truths are being written and very likely being sung about in the church. He was God. Now, this is strong language here. The Greek word translated form here is, is a little different than what we think of form. We think of form as more, um, hey, it, it just looks like something. But the Greek word here is more about the essence, okay, the essence. And so 
we, it's even stronger, more strong than if uh, Paul had simply said Jesus was God. Uh, no, Jesus was the essence of God. It's not like he was a demagogue that was, you know, um, that, that was, you know, created and yeah, he, had, he was given this godly nature. No, he was the essence of God. At the core of his being, he was God. Paul could not have been stronger in his language here. We also see the Trinity here. It says here, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, the grasping of of the equality with God here is not, for example, what Satan did, okay? There's a huge difference between Satan's uprising and, and, and saying that Christ didn't grasp at, at, at this. And the, the thing is, is that Satan was grasping at something that was not his. Like, he, it wasn't his. He was not God. He was an angel. He was a created being of God, yet he wanted the place of God. That is not what's happening here. When it talks about grasping it would have been, it was Christ's right to hold on to and to continue to grasp. And that's the meaning here. It's not that, hey, he was trying to rob something of God. No, it's about he decided not to hold on to what was rightly his temporarily. To, to let that go for a moment. And we see here the pre-existence of the of the Trinity, God the Son did not come into existence in in Bethlehem, but He existed long before Bethlehem. In fact, He existed in all of eternity, just like the Father and the Holy Spirit. He was without beginning. Christ, for a time, emptied Himself, not of the divine nature, but the exercise of many of the benefits. He also left his previous form and took on human form, which we'll get to in just a moment. As Romans 15.3 says, Jesus did not seek to please himself. He didn't seek to please himself. He sought to step down for the benefit of the glory of God and for the love of mankind. And so how should the deity of Christ govern our mind in humbly caring for others and in, in, in governing our minds and putting others above ourselves. Well, if Jesus was God, okay, that's everything, right? I mean, if he is God, you just you have to either reject him. Or you have to absolutely, totally, and 100% radically embrace Him. There's no room for liking Him. There's no room for liking Jesus. You can't do that, even though many people here in the South, everybody likes Jesus, right? But the reason you can't like Him is because either He made these claims of being God and He was just a raving egomaniac that we should despise him 
or he really was God. And if that's the case, we have no other option but to bend our knees and worship and say, whatever you ask of me, I'll do it. So when, when God calls us to a, a radical life that goes against our nature of putting others above ourselves, He's asking as God, okay? As God. And we have no option there. We should radically love Him for all that He's done and all that He is. If He's God, then let's obey Him. It's a small thing that he's asking of us to put others above ourselves. And also, because of the Trinity, we can live dependently on the deity of Christ. Now, how should the truth of the Trinity govern our minds? How should the truth of God the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit affect our ability to serve others. And stay with me for a moment. Augustine, uh, Augustine, when he said, when, when he was talking about the Trinity, here's, here's an interesting thing he said. He said, without the Trinity, you have a God in need. Augustine said, Without the Trinity, God never loved anything until He created something to love. And therefore, if that's the case, we have a problem because we have a God that is not all-sufficient, that is dependent on His creation to show His love. But as it is, as the Father exists in as God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, in eternity past, they were not bored, folks. They were not thinking, man, this is horrible, us loving one another and us enjoying our presence together. And man, when we get those humans on, on scene, then, man, things are really going to look up. I mean, many people think like that 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 we were created because god needed us no god out of the sufficiency and the overflow of love and satisfaction of the trinity chose to create us to display that glory not out of need, but out of overflow of what He was and, and who He was and how the Trinity loved one another. They brought us into that love. God did not create anything, angels or solar systems or animals or people, out of His need, but out of the overflow of His abundance. So how in the world does that govern my mind? Uh, in loving others and preserving unity. Because when we look, we look to our great God, we do not, I mean, the scripture could not be more clear on this, folks, that God, that Christ came to serve. 
that he's not served by us because he needs anything. The scriptures are clear on that. Because he is the giver of all. He is full. God did not create out of need, but out of his abundance. And he pours and he fills us up so that we can do what he does. Okay, stay with me here. Do you find yourselves as always being offended or having hurt feelings in your relationships where, man, you're just so needy, you're just wanting things from everybody else and you have no, no, no desire to give to others because you're just always wanting for others. You see something in it on Facebook and it just enrages you and you're offended or you have this relationship and they say something that hurts you and so you're out. You're out of the relationship. What's happening is that you're just a needy person. And you're not depending on a God who, who he was absolutely full and pour in his, is designed to pour into us so that we might be full, so that we can in hand pour into others. Right? When, we, when we look to the, the all-sufficient God to fill our needs, it's then that, that, that we are feel, filled up so that we can in turn love and serve others without just needing everything from everybody. We become a servant, not, not because of our own nature. I mean, Christ was able to serve because of his own nature was filled up in, in deity. But we have the benefit of being filled up, our satisfaction being filled, grace and love filled in our life through god so that we can in turn pour that out into others so it's important that we realize that that we serve not out of a place of need but a god who who has met our needs and then after we kind of get this glimpse of who christ was before uh he came to earth we we see the humility of christ we see first that he emptied himself verse 7 but emptied himself is what it says. The big question is, what did he empty himself of? There's some people that wrongly say, well, he emptied himself of all of his deity, of all of his nature. And that goes against orthodoxy and it goes against the scriptures. So what does it mean when he says he emptied himself the context here tells us, if you keep reading verse 1, but emptied himself by. So how did he empty himself? By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. What he, what he gave up was the status and the privilege that was his in heaven. This is what um, John 17, 5, this is what uh, he prayed. He said, and now Father, glory me in your own presence with your glory that I had with you before the world existed. And so there was a time, this moment where Christ came that, that he had this glory with the Father and, and then he, he gave up that status and those comforts for a, for a season to come and do his work on the cross. And as we'll see, he will go back to that glory. Now, it was his to hold on to, right? 
He wasn't forced to give any of this up. It was something that he gave up freely. As Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. When we suffer, we must realize that Christ not only only understands our suffering, he freely chose it. You know, like this suffering that we experience on this earth, y'all, it belongs to us, right? Like, we are fallen. We are born as sinners fallen in our natures. And then we, through uh, our own, we add our own personal mix to the sins of the world by living according to that nature. And we... We live in a suffering world because we're all sinners. Suffering belongs to us. We deserve it. But Jesus didn't. He deserved to stay in heaven above it all in the comfort of the Trinity. And yet he chose to come down, to step out of the life and the, of the status and the privilege into the world of suffering, to be rejected and to be despised, to be betrayed by a friend, to weep over his friends, over the death of a friend, to, to weep over Jerusalem, to walk this earth with no place to lay his head, to take on human form, and, and things seem to be that, that he will remain in human form. In glorified human form for all of eternity. What most theologians believe the scriptures point to. But it was not just that he came to experience the average human suffering. He went way beyond it. He went to a disgraceful cross to die for us. He was obedient to to the cross in verse 8 and being found in human form he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross like it would have been an amazing act of humility for christ to have come to this earth to kind of live in our world and suffer in our world and die in a warm bed like that would have been humble and yet he went farther he went as far as our sin demanded and that was death on the cross paul says here even death on the cross like why does paul say that why does paul say death why do you just say death on the cross why why does he say even death on the cross y'all because the cross was a humiliating way to go it was the most humiliating way a person could go out of this world the suffering involved in hanging there naked before the eyes of all, suffering as a criminal. Even death on a cross, not just a a comfortable death, not even just a bad death, but an absolute worst death 
than you can imagine of that time. So how should the humility of Christ govern our minds in this way? This one seems pretty self-evident to me. Our salvation exists because Christ went from the most elevated status he could possibly have to the absolute lowest status he could possibly have. He went from the highest place of comfort a being can occupy in fellowship with the Trinity in heaven. And he went to the lowest, most uncomfortable death devised for a human being. How can those of us who receive the benefits of this salvation, how can any of us say, I'm looking out for number one. I'm looking out for my rights. Oh, I'm going to hold on to everything that I've been promised. I'm going to hold on to every right that I have. I'm not going to let it go. Every comfort I can get, I get it. How can any of us have that kind of mind when this was the mind of Christ? We're going to say we're Christians, if we're going to say we're Christ-like, we're going to say we have a mind like His, to always to, to look out for number one is as far away from the mind of Christ than any of us can possibly get. Jesus placed the glory of God and his love for mankind above his own self-interest. How can we not? How can any of us have any other argument but to put others above ourselves as Christ put us in the glory of God above his own comfort? Now, up, up until this point, we've seen Christ's humiliation. That's about to change. Um, I like what the Pastor Ken Hughes, uh, how he preached this text, and um, that, okay, Christ is elevated, and then you, it's kind of like a giant catapult, and he begins to be cranked downward, okay? He comes in the form of man. The crank is cranking, and he comes to earth, and, and he, he goes through all these different moments of suffering, and, and that crank is turned, and, and, he, and then... And then he suffers death on the cross. And man, it's, it can't cr get much cranked more further down. And then he's buried. Like, and then, the, I mean, it's just that crank is underground. It's, it's been pulled. But then suddenly in this moment, in this verse, man, the line is cut and he slings back to his glory because he was successful he suffered yes and he was humble and he did all of it but he did it perfectly and God says it's time for you to go back to your glory and what an amazing turning point of scripture this is verse 9 therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name we have this word therefore and it's meaning that because Christ did all this humbling because he he came and he came and he and he lowered himself and he lowered himself then God cuts the cord and sends him back to glory because of his great success in living for the glory of God on this earth and never sinning 
and humbly obeying to the point of death. And it's not as if he went back to glory he didn't already have, but that glory had gone public in an amazing way. The, the incarnation, God in the flesh on this earth. It had gone fully and amazingly public. Ephesians 4.20 says this, it says uh, similar to these thoughts. God in his great might that, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. After a job perfectly done, Christ takes his rightful place back at the right hand of God. This was the answer to Christ's prayer in John 17, when he says in verse 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. God honored that prayer because Christ was successful in his humiliation. But not only does he take his rightful place, we see in these verses that one day everyone will acknowledge that place of authority. Sure, there's, there's some that fight against it now. There's some that refuse to believe. But here's what verse says. So that, uh, verse 10 says, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And if Philippians 2 is that, is that mountain peak, one of those huge mountain peaks in the New Testament, we have a mountain peak in the Old Testament of Isaiah chapter 45, which is just an, an unfolding of the sovereignty and greatness of Yahweh God. And this is what verse 23 says in Isaiah 45. By uh, himself, by, or, I'm sorry, by myself I have sworn. This is God talking. By myself I have sworn. From my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall swear allegiance. So I want you to know something. that These peaks of Scripture are connected as it talks in Isaiah about the Yahweh God. And it talks about Christ here. And out there, every knee shall bow. It's the same instance, right? Jesus is Yahweh, okay? There is no Old Testament God and New Testament God, as some heretics like to say. We have one God. Now, I want us to dwell for a moment at this incredible image of everyone bowing to Christ. I mean... This is an exhausted list. You are either in heaven, and it says everyone in heaven will bow. You're either under the earth, in hell, or in death. Or you're on the earth, 
Those are the only options. And it says here that all of them will bow the knee to Christ. Now, some will willfully and joyfully do it. I mean, we, we came here this morning and, and in an, we didn't all get on our knees, but, but what we're doing is we're acknowledging Him as Lord. That's why it's so important to come here and, and on this earth and, and be together and do this together often. Some, of, some knees are going to bow joyfully that that's my God, that is my Savior. And other knees will bow because they're being crushed by the mightiness of God. And they will acknowledge Him as Lord, not because they necessarily want to, but because they have to. It's undeniable at that point. Satan is going to do it. He's going to kneel. Hitler is going to kneel. Stalin is going to kneel. Herod is going to do it. Pilate will do it. The miserable wretch that shot 50 people last Sunday is going to do it. Everyone, no matter how much they hated God on this earth, is going to bend the knee. Amen? It's not a question of if, but when are you going to do it? And when you do it, will have huge ramifications. For if you wait until this moment to have your knee forced, it's going to go very bad for you. What happens next, not your God forces you to kneel, is going to be very bad as you spend eternity in hell and torment away from God. But if you do it now, if you acknowledge Him as Lord, if you acknowledge, man, all that we've been talking about of Christ coming, if you look at, at Christ coming to this earth and how he lived and then look at the cross and, and, and then his resurrection, you say, he's my Lord. That's, that's my hope. It's not me, it's him. He is my Lord. If you do that in this life, then it's going to go beautifully well for you in this day because you're going to kneel and you're going to say, man, this is what I've been doing and this is what I'm going to go do for all of eternity and the joy of heaven with God. So I have to ask the question where have you bent the knee? Have you called Him Lord? I would encourage you that if you could say that I've not bent the knee, that you would do it before you're forced to bend the knee. In a few moments, I'll be, I'll be down here up front. I'd love to talk to you about that. People around you would love to talk to you about that as well. So, 
how, look briefly for a moment, how should the exaltation of Christ govern our minds? I mean, what's hap- happened to Christ is a little different than what will happen in our exaltation, okay? We're not going to be catapulted into the, back into our fellowship with the Trinity and all the glory we had with Christ from all of eternity. But the Scriptures are clear, folks, that those who humble themselves and those who live a life for others on this earth will be exalted in eternity. Matthew 23 12 is one verse of many whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted you know if god didn't want us to think at times about the fact that hey i can i can give up some stuff now i can give up some rights now i can give up some comforts now for the sake of others because one day God's going to exalt me and God's going to give me joy because of this. If he hadn't wanted us to think through that, he, he wouldn't have instructed it in all through Scripture that when we humble ourselves, when we exalt God that, and when we put others above ourselves, that, that one day we're going to get a great reward. And Christ is going to... We're, we're in Christ. And so... As he is exalted, we're not exalted to Christ's level, no, but we are in Christ and we are his. What an amazing comfort that is when we are faced with, yeah, having to deal with some discomfort, having to stuff our rights back down. So, let me ask you, Christian, do you have the mind of Christ? Would you say others, when they look at your life, they say, that's a person that thinks like Christ. That's a person that's willing for the glory of God and the love of man to put others above themselves. It's what the Scripture tells us that we are called to be as Christians, is to have, Paul's telling us, have that mind, have the same mind of it's yours in Christ Jesus. And then I would ask you, if you're here and you're saying, man, I don't know if I've ever bent the knee, I would encourage you to respond to Christ if He is calling you to Himself this morning. Do it. Do it. Because you don't want to be forced to do it. Please stand as our musicians come. and uh, I'm going to pray and ask God, ask you to respond however God has laid on your heart to respond this morning. And Jesus... Dearly, Father God, I just pray in Jesus' name that, God, you would help us as Christians to look to you, look to what Christ did, and the example that he set for us. God, we, we can't do what he did, which is why he did it for us. God, but help us to try to nurture the same mind in us that was in Christ Jesus. And God, I pray anyone here who's never bent the knee, God, that they will, as your grace calls them and as your mercy calls them, that they would respond before they're forced to when it's too late. God, move in us.
In Jesus' name I pray.